healthcare professional who would like to hear from experts in the field of pain care? Or maybe you are caring for a family member who is experiencing pain or health challenges and you would like more information. Perhaps you are a healthcare educator who wants to better inform your students or staff. Then you are in the right place. This is Faces of Pain Care, the show where we interview experts in the field of pain care. And now, the co-creator of the Wong Baker Faces Pain Rating Scale and the executive director of the Wong Baker Faces Foundation, Connie Baker. Hello, welcome to Faces of Pain Care. I am Connie Baker. It is a real pleasure to have Dr. Daniel Abasia with us for this podcast. Dr. Abasia is a clinical assistant professor at Rutgers Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy, where he earned his Doctor of Pharmacy degree in 2005. You can learn more about Dr. Abasia on the episode page of our website, but his special areas of research and professional interest include pain management, palliative care, patient medication safety, clinical service development, and innovative educational techniques in didactic and experiential settings. In the conversations we've had over the last few months, it is clear to me that he is also a very kind and compassionate person, husband and father. Dan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. There are so many topics you could cover that would be fascinating and helpful to our listeners, but I'm especially grateful that you're willing to share a personal experience you have had recently that has drawn on your heart as well as your expertise in pain care. Please share your story with us. Uh, Thank you, Connie. Um, Yeah, and unfortunately, the the person I'm going to talk about couldn't be here uh, today due to some work constraints, Um, but, but the personal experiences with my wife, who back in early February was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, since over time it was at stage two, um, not fortunately too advanced, but advanced enough to be worried. Um, and, and what it's, what it's really shown me and her, um, is really the, the, the fear and understanding the fear with cancer, the fear of everything that comes along with it, but also the importance of, knowing enough and knowing as much as you can about the disease state itself, the treatment options, the people involved in the care. And, and what I take away and what I'll, you know, hopefully we're a discussion related to pain is, is having other people there with you to help process the information as almost a wingman, if you will. Um, I was fortunate enough with my job to have the flexibility to go with almost all of her appointments. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the biggest piece, both professionally of someone who understands a lot of this, it makes it easier, um, for me to process the information, but I'm still her husband. I still wasn't a pharmacist really at, uh, during those visits. Um, but I think the important part is having that additional person or someone, it doesn't have to be husband or wife or whoever, um, to go through this with you because it's a terrifying experience for both people. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have the knowledge enough to understand a lot of what was discussed, but, but still, um, I can't predict what was going to go on. Just that knowledge helped anticipate questions, anticipate problems that could occur. Um, fortunately, the, over, generally, her care was, um, has gone well, but it's been an incredible, terrifying um, bizarre, satisfying, if you will, journey from really uh, February of this year till now, still till now. She's fortunately doing well. She's back to work. We're kind of beginning to get life back to normal. Wow. What an experience. Yeah. So what are some of the suggestions that you might have for people who are beginning to embark on this journey? Um, What kind of things do you think they need for preparation? Sure, sure. Um, I, you know, I think the biggest piece is one of, as I've said earlier, is have someone or someone's to be able to be there with that person. Um, you know, uh, just a little background with my wife. So it was, um, we had come back from a vacation. Uh, she had been, just kind of got out of the shower and during that time had noticed a lump in her breast, in her left breast, and um, not really doing, you know, as for her, a, a formal um, breast exam on herself, but I had just found something. Um, she asked me, 
what was possibly going on, and it, pretty quickly we realized it was something that needed to be checked out um, and to then uh, move forward. So I think first and foremost, and not everyone has this, but to, to know or hopefully have someone available um, to you and that has, that's, of course I'm not objective, you know, I want her to do well, but in the same sense to, um, to be there, be that, that opinion and really that sounding board and may, you know, tell you, hey, this is something serious to go look at. Um, from that point on, it, it really snowballed into um, her OBGYN who had first seen her. I mean, that's the first question is, you know, when you find someone like this, who do you go to? Mm -hmm. You don't automatically go, and that's kind of, you don't automatically go to a breast surgeon. Um, we didn't know, you know, at the time we were living in New York City. I didn't have, um, she had, didn't really have a primary care doctor there, but had an OBGYN. So we made an appointment. Fortunately, you know, when anyone hears breast cancer, uh, they move quickly, especially in, in my wife, who's, who's in her early 30s. And then <clears throat> from then on, getting a mammogram, getting a sonogram, um, which then still was suspicious, and then meeting up with a breast surgeon, um, who we didn't know, because all of this is moving very quickly, as you can tell, um, doing a biopsy, unfortunately getting the not so good news that it was um, an invasive cancer. And then from there, finding um, you know, breast surgeon that we're comfortable with, finding an oncologist that we're, um, and navigating those pieces. So um, those tools to, to begin to, to wear of is, is really, to, if you can, and this is why, like, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have people around me and have the knowledge, but know that you can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. um, I am incredibly impressed with patients that I see that do this alone, but it really is very hard to do it to make the decisions that best work for that person, for that patient. Um, that's what I found because everyone's different. There are some prescriptive treatment plans and that's for sure, but it's still a lot to go through and, and you want to make the best decision, but oftentimes you need someone else there to hear. Um, so that's kind of number one. And then begin to really understand if you, as best you can the, the disease process. And, you know, I, I hate using, I mean, cancer is such a loaded term, um, to begin to understand and also, you know, the begin reading up, finding whatever you can that's hopefully objective about treatment options. Again, I was fortunate, or my wife was fortunate, or maybe unfortunate, to have her husband as a pharmacist who kind of understood <clears throat> not only the drugs, excuse me, but also, um, you know, the surgery, radiation, the potential different pieces mm -hmm. to the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. That's really good. You know, um, I, I love that, how important it is to have someone with you. And it it may not always be the same person. It, hopefully people have a community of, of people. It, maybe it is your spouse or a significant other, but um, having someone, I also found having that person write things down if, right. if that's appropriate. It's not only helpful to have the, um, the second pair of ears, which I think makes a huge difference because this is so emotion packed when you are going through something like this. Um, but we found that just having somebody be the scribe and mm -hmm. keeping notes so that when you go back and go, now, what did he say or what did she say? <laughs> and you right. have that with you. And then and then to begin asking the questions and find you've got to put together your own team mm -hmm. of, of people and finding out what what that's going to look like. And how did you, I mean, were there questions that you asked or? There definitely were, you know, and, and thank you for um, kind of mentioning that, that being the scribe. So it's obviously hearing it, it's one thing, but, but pretty quickly you could misinterpret or, or misunderstand something. Um, really early on, um, I had taken upon myself because of all the information that was going on, because, um, you know, even though I, I, again, I understood most of it, I, I still knew that getting records is not the easiest thing, unfortunately, um, how important it would be to just document what was going on. And so I've basically kept some, I guess I'll call it a journal of her cancer journey um, since really the diagnosis. Um, and uh, it's now approximately 16 pages long typed um, <laughs> uh, with a lot of information and, you know, small font. Um, but and again, it started with just information gathering so that when we had to make decisions because everything goes incredibly fast even though there might it seems that it's not maybe there's a week or so between appointments it's still you know you're trying to live your life and and it, you can't go back to that 
possibly just 15 minute appointment and understand what was going on. So really taking vigorous notes, documenting it. Um, and it's since become really a story uh, of the journey that hopefully one day I could use to, and we could use, not even myself, um, to help someone else going through. Um, I love that you kept a journal. That is, that was such a, that is such a great idea and it keeps continuity. And if it's just you doing that care and being a part of that, then that's one thing. But if you've got a team of people like when my cousin recently went through treatment, there was a different, we called ourselves project managers, and there was a different person there every week. And so keeping a journal um, for, for people to have continuity from week to week, I think is really helpful. And what we're going to do is have on our website, in our resources section, a pain relief log that people can use mm -hmm. and, and adapt to whatever they need so that they can keep track of you know, what their pain rating was or their nausea rating or um, temperature, blood pressure, whatever it is that they need to keep track of. And and what we found too is helpful, uh, just what they the person felt like eating or drinking right. or, you know, because if you, if you, for, it's so easy to forget when did we give that medication and when did we, you know, what did we do? Right, right, and and I and I know you, you know, as a as as expert, like literally writing the books on these assessments, knows that um, you know pain is just beyond the number. Exactly. It's really what um, you know. There's so many other factors into that, and I know you know with teaching students about assessing pain, I think that's why I, I find it so fascinating. Is that it doesn't take you don't need to be a physician, you don't you know to do this. You could be a pharmacist, a nurse. Mm -hmm child life specialist, really anyone, I mean, a, a mom or dad, to ask the basic questions about beyond what's the intensity of your pain, but also um, what are the palliative factors? What helps it? What doesn't help it? And, and having that journal, um, you know, again, if, or at least someone there, if the patient can't necessarily do it, is incredibly valuable to the, the team that's taking care of that person. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did kind of, uh, what I wanted to mention as well, beyond the journal, was, was, Yes, to write down the information about what has been told to us. And yes, you know, now it's kind of been an interesting, you know, to get a sense of the journey over the period of time. But as someone who practices, especially in a hospital, there's a lot of things going on um, in medicine in general. And, and we subscribe to the, 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 the term patient-centered care, which I totally believe in, you know, the patient's at the center. But oftentimes that center is the patient's there in the center. Everyone else in the team is is dealing with them, but never really kind of talking around them. Does that make sense? Right. It's almost like ring around the rosy. You have someone in the center who you do care about as a team member, sure. but you're often not necessarily interacting with them. And, and so, like you said, I really liked how you said you're project managers. That's often how I felt like with, um, again, with my wife, but, and also unfortunately seeing the realities of healthcare in the United States and understanding the different um, pieces to the puzzle that someone had to be accountable because it's very easy to just follow what one physician says or, um, you know, misunderstand and go one which way. But uh, ultimately you as the patient, as you know, the possibly the family are in charge of your care. And so that documentation, if you will, the journal was really the, the basis for how we could figure out where we we're going and also document, okay, they told us these options. Let's go through, go back again at dinner, what are the pros and cons? Um, but really understanding that it was up to us to really manage this patient-centered care because we're at the center. Everyone else is there for us, but unfortunately, oftentimes we kind of lost in the shuffle. Does yeah. that make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. I think that's a really good point. And it, it reminds me also, also that when you're making those decisions, there are so many variables to consider and so many options like t approaches to right. to the cancer maybe it's black and white but it, most of the time it's not and what we found in our experience with my cousin for instance she said I, I don't have time to do all this research will you do the research and tell mm -hmm. me what you found and if right. so if you have somebody that you can trust that can do some of those things no no I would encourage um, the person who maybe has this diagnosis to know what they need and be able to say to the people around them, this is, a, this is what I need. People are always wanting to know what they can do. Right. And if, if you can say, go look at this website and see if mm -hmm. this is something I should 
pay attention to. And, right. and that's really helpful. Right. And, and I, I'm, I'm not sure about your cousin's case. I know with my wife, too. Um, it, it's true. People came from everywhere, not only family and friends and coworkers, but friends of friends, um, mm. especially women who've gone through or having breast cancer, people that she and I never knew. Right. Um, you know, and, and oftentimes they were the best sounding boards to not only understand what she was going through or what I was going through and hearing, you know, a spouse, um, you know, uh, about, you know, hey, Dan, what do you need? You know, has someone, but, but in the same sense, uh, knowing what they need and kind of telling um, my wife, Larissa, that she, you know, this is, don't be afraid to ask people. Say, you know, if you need meals, you need a meal. If you need to pick up our son at daycare because I'm working or whatever else, do that. Um, so I agree. That's, that's, the, that's the best piece. Yeah, right? it really is. Well, so as, as things developed with mm -hmm. Larissa, tell me how you, um, you know, approached the pain care or the different side effects she was having from treatment mm -hmm. or whatever? Sure. So as things moved on and we, we, we kind of understood the diagnosis, um, you know, going back to, for me, uh, fortunately knowing where to find the information, what I often did was we would, when we, when we went with the physicians, we, you know, heard the treatment plan. I understood it fortunately, um, but then still went back to look up guidelines, whatever, just to make sure kind of it was made sense. It wasn't just um, not, tr not that I'm not trusting the physicians, but in a way you're in charge of your own care to really make sure that what they're saying is correct. And, and again, sh my wife benefits from the fact of what I do, um, but it's still important, I think, as anyone going through this process, like you said, to ask someone if you can't look it up, but really take the time to just kind of, you know, trust but verify, as I think Ronald right. Reagan said. Um, <laughs> with the information that you're being given. So from that point, we understood that um, her plan, her treatment could have gone a couple ways. Um, either way, the cancer had to be removed. So some type of surgery was necessary. And because of, of the, the tumor size, it wasn't this gigantic thing, but it was big enough to um, potentially travel to a lymph node um, and also potentially metastasize, which um, you know, was one of the worst case scenarios possible. So in a way, going through this, I know for me personally and for her, we kept open discussion about, you know, what could almost the best possible scenarios and then the worst possible scenarios. Um, so she needed to have some sort of surgery as well because of the tumor size. She needed to have chemo and or radiation. Um, so I began kind of thinking, okay, she's going to need chemotherapy. I know that there's often side effects associated with that. Um, so as that, as we move forward with discussing the treatment options, she, uh, you know, I began to kind of tell her and, and she would ask me, what can I expect? What are the side effects? And, and, and for me, I'm kind of, as my job, I have to, again, provide the information and, and, but also bring it down to, this is probably what will happen. And this is probably won't, what won't happen. Um, when we just what we decided to do what she decided to ultimately was do chemo chemotherapy first so that would shrink the tumor um which is called neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy and then have surgery um once she's healthy enough to remove the 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 tumor um she chose to have a double mastectomy um there's a lot of uh, with reconstruction, she didn't have to do that. She had the option to do um, to have a um, you know just a lumpectomy, but because of just what we've known and because of you know possibly fear of recurrence, she decided and I supported her to to kind of go a little more invasive route with the double mastectomy. Um, but I'll get more to that because that deals with the pain. When it comes to the chemo. Um, we sat with the oncologist who was, you know, again, fortunately, all the doctors up to this, through this point have been very good and supportive, um, sat down and, and discussed the treatment options. And really, there are two major ways that she could have gone. And, it, and it's kind of funny. You have one that both are tried and true. That's the biggest thing. You know, they, first and foremost, they both could have worked the same because you don't want to necessarily choose a chemotherapy regimen that's not going to work well or is debatable. And then another um, that, that, you know, works better. So <clears throat> either way, fortunately, we have two that work generally the same. But one was more toxic than the other in terms of nausea and vomiting, in terms of fatigue. So not surprisingly, she decided to choose 
the less toxic option, which I agreed um, for any uh, for all patients and and their uh, caregivers, it's it's not a bad option as long as the outcomes are the same. It's it's okay to go to the less toxic option, um, but also you know and again it, it, with her it was also safe for other reasons as well um, in terms of you know safety on her heart and things like that. You know mm-hmm. she's young, so fortunately she has that on her side. Um, so what we did is once we got an understanding of what chemotherapy regimen was going through, uh, you know, I, again, because of what I do really began, we just talked about what could, could be expected. I mean, I gave her literature if she wanted it, um, to read because, uh, the one thing I know I didn't want to do is just throw this information to her face and worry her. I, in fact, there are some discussions that I would say things not really kind of in my pharmacist brain and not really thinking that how she could interpret it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've since learned, you know, really to um, give the information, but but up to a point. You really have to assess what the person wants to know or doesn't want to know. Um, and really with that information, as my wife began chemo, um, again, still documenting what was going on and assessing how she did, really making sure I was on top of asking the physicians, okay, so she's going to have X, Y, and Z chemotherapy. What are you, what are you going to be prescribing to prevent nausea and vomiting? What's exactly. going to be prescribed? So in a way, really, uh, again, fortunately, I, I I'm, am able to anticipate this just of what I do, but it's perfectly fine for anyone else in this situation to always ask, okay, to, to expect side effects. Water has side effects. If you, you know, for, from a medication to not only ask what's going to happen, but what are we going to do about this? Because side effects can stop therapy very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't want this. You know, we want, I wanted her and she wanted to get through therapy as best she could to kind of get through having cancer and hopefully get rid of it um, for good. Mm-hmm. So what were some of those answers for how to deal with the side effects? Yeah. I, I love so, that you're recommending being proactive about that because right. a lot of times people, it, it takes them mm-hmm. by surprise. Right. And I think it, sometimes it takes the physicians by surprise because they, again, they want what's best for their patients. And I, I get that. But as my wife said, um, cause after the, especially after her surgery, I said, you know, if you can go back, what would you have liked to have done or known? And she's like, you know, I just wish sometimes the, the healthcare professionals and not just doctors, everyone would take a step back and understand that this is new to me. It may, they may see these patients all the time mm-hmm. and it's, you know, and it's, it's, um, something they see, you know, it's run of the mill things possibly, but to understand that this is me. I've never gone through this before and to really kind of take a step back and understand that everything they're saying is not new to the patient or mm-hmm. their family. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's, uh, I'm sorry, it's not it, old it's, to them. It's, right, it's you're right. New. Uh-huh. It's new to them, not the run of the mill cases that they see day in and day out. Mm-hmm. So what, what we did to, to anticipate that was really, um, knowing that chemotherapy can have from some pretty severe side effects was, um, what they did was give her prescriptions for drugs to, um, to prevent and treat nausea. Mm-hmm. Um, they did give her um, an anti-anxiety medication. Um, and let me know if you want me to go into specifics as well, because I, I remember all the, all the medications that, oh, that she's been free, taking. Feel free, feel free. Sure. Um, so, you know, for her, um, so, and then, uh, so basically the nausea medications were uh, drugs called Compazine and Zofran, very common in the hospital, common for nausea and vomiting. Um, but especially the Zofran we know does work well to treat nausea and vomiting due to chemotherapy. The um, anti-anxiety drug Ativan um, was to also help with anxiety, uh, with with nausea and vomiting because there's an anxiety component, but also to help her sleep Mm -hmm. because she was beginning to kind of complain about sleep, most likely just due to the sheer anxiety of having breast cancer Mm -hmm. uh, and knowing what was going on. But still there's patients with cancer. We've, we as healthcare providers have found that they just, they don't sleep as well anyway, but these drugs work well. Um, So that was a piece. So, and that was, that was all her. I mean, she asked, you know, I'm not sleeping well, what can I do? Having things for nausea, having um, medications also um, like a steroid, like like what's called dexamethasone, that would also um, help with nausea and vomiting as like a secondary role. Um, those are pieces that that they did. I didn't. We didn't ask for those, but 
they were definitely part of what should be done when someone goes home after getting chemo or during their process. These drugs were also given oftentimes before she actually received the drugs. So I would go with her, um, you know, her chemotherapy regimen. It was four different drugs would take a good three or four hours to be infused um, over time, but making sure that there was enough prophylaxis, if you will, before the, the chemo was given. Uh, um, so when it comes to pain, there wasn't too much pain yet, although it was something that came up, and we did ask um, in, the, in, this, in the sense that fortunately she was the pain really would often just be due to maybe injection sites, um, things that really could be managed either with hot or cold therapy, um, even maybe possibly Tylenol or something like that. So up until this point, pain wasn't a huge issue. The bigger issue was nausea and vomiting, um, anxiety, um, fatigue also was probably the next best thing. Although unfortunately, um, because her, fortunately or unfortunately, because her white, her blood cell counts were good, she didn't need other specialized therapies to to really boost um, her energy levels. Um, it just unfortunately took took a lot out of her, and she just needed to um, rest when she could and and as needed. Um, does that? That's perfect. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. Good, and and I I mean giving the medicine medicine before the chemotherapy to help with nausea is a great idea. Right, right, and and that's that you know again that's my knowing that, knowing that that's the best way, because once you kind of go down that slope of, especially for nausea and vomiting and chemotherapy, it's very hard to come back and, and treat it right, well. Right. Just your, you know, your brain and, um, you know, gets, uh, anticipates that anticipatory nausea and vomiting could be a horrible thing for patients. So, and that's, again, if <laughs> the name of the game of our discussion is really anticipating um, these pieces and, and understanding that things could happen, Hopefully they won't, and oftentimes they don't. But if they do, what's the plan? Right. Oh, I love out? it. Yeah. And so then when was the pain, did that come with surgery? So the pain really came, it was with um, surgery. So if she finished chemo, um, her whites count was good. So the, to give you a sense of the, the time course, because I think it's important for, for people to know, she started chemotherapy in and around March by the time diagnosis and discussing treatment plans and, and, you know, really where we were going to have all this done. Um, her surgery was in, uh, early August of this year. So between that time, there's a chemotherapy every three weeks for six cycles. Um, <clears throat> obviously she had never really had a surgery before the, the only other time she was in the hospital for any period of time was when she delivered our son. And I will give her a lot of credit, um, related to pain because she did a, a completely medication-free birth. Right. She very much wanted to go the natural route and God bless her. She, she did it. Um, you know, I, there are times that she wanted some medications, but, uh, you know, I, I knew she could tolerate pain, but in the same sense, when it comes to pain and surgery, that's the biggest thing. That's it's something I've had major surgery before. You're most concerned about. No one wants to be in pain after. And when it comes to, um, the pain of surgery, which is specifically acute pain, if it's not managed well, um, it could progress to chronic pain and then the, the negative effects related to that. Um, so what we did again was in preparation for her surgery, meeting with the surgeon, specifically, I mean, both surgeons, breast and plastic, um, asking them, being proactive enough to ask, um, even when it seemed, we seemed rushed, but saying, you know, um, to her breast surgeon specifically, who would be the one managing the pain immediately after her surgery, what are you going to be doing? Like, what are you going to be doing for pain? And it, for me, I asked some more specific questions because I knew, and this is something that I do as a, for my career, but beyond that, for someone else in this situation, just asking, what are you going to be doing for pain? And can you, and then the next question, can you be specific? So that you know, and there are different ways of doing it, that something will be done, that it's, you're just not going to be um, out there on an island without pain management. And then you could begin to anticipate and read up on what something like PCA means or patient-controlled analgesia um, so that the patient and caregiver knows, okay, they're going to give me something that I then can demand when I need pain. Um, or they're going to use something called multimodal therapy. And so, again, I know what that means, but someone else might. And that means really you're going to use different types of medications that have different mechanisms to then treat pain because 
pain is not just you know uh, like a electric electrical wire you know it's from one uh, transmission to um, something that that receives it there's many different types of transmissions going on and you need to block many of those in this situation so that you limit the drugs used or the doses and then um, limit the side effects uh, with that. Wow, good. Um, you know, going back, I'm sorry, just and if we can go into more detail, I mean, we have the, the pre-pain and then, um, you know, the, the next big piece with pain is then once we're thinking about going home, what to do with that? Because in the hospital, we have a lot of different options. At home, that's when really the anxiety hits. Even for someone like me who, I don't know, I feel comfortable with what I know and I've seen this before, but you're, you're then there. You know, it's, it's you and, and in this case my wife um, generally, you know, not alone. We had, fortunately, we had family and friend help, but still they're, they're, not, they're only there for periods of time. It's otherwise us that is living with this, you know, the other 20 hours out of the day or sure. so. Sure. Yeah. So what specific, um, so did you go from IV medications to PO medications by mouth, um, with pain medications? Sure. So with, with her, um, what they did, what, what we heard, what was done during surgery was that, um, they gave her some medications right around, just right around the time of incision with this multimodal therapy to block the pain receptors, even though she was out, even though she was, mm-hmm. she was under for quite a bit, along with the anesthesia, um, that's been found to, to, to really prevent further post-operative pain. So that was one piece. When she got out of surgery, um, they started her on patient-controlled analgesia with a, a potent um, medication, an opioid medication, uh, hydromorphone, or Dilaudid. Mm-hmm. Dilaudid's great. Works well. Um, I've yet to hear anyone who doesn't like Dilaudid, mm-hmm. um, but it's not the be-all to end-all. It is, it is potent. And, and in her case, when you're post-op, when you have someone has breast surgery especially, um, it's known and it's been studied in the literature that you're going to have very severe pain. So that's a good option. Pretty soon after, <clears throat> once she was out of her, the post-anesthesia care unit or PACU, she um, still had some IV medications available, but quickly, we, uh, she would switch over to oral pain medication, something like Percocet. Mm-hmm. That is a combination of oxycodone and Tylenol or acetaminophen. Um, and then it was really, because her pain was managed well up front, she, outside of being sore and, and uncomfortable, she didn't need a, um, a continuous dose of a medication or a long-acting medication. Um, some people do. Fortunately, she didn't. Um, but, but that's one thing to, to ask as well is what's going to be available after the fact of surgery, um, especially how we're going to transition over. Because everyone, you know, as, as you know, pain is, pain is what the patient says it is, and, and everyone experiences it differently. Um, but I think what helped as well is, is my wife's understanding that, yes, there's going to be pain, but really under, um, you know, thinking about it, knowing the process of what's going on. Because when you go into a situation like this, like major surgery, whether a woman for a mastectomy or, or anything, um, the more you know about what's going to happen, the more you understand that pain is, is going to be there. Mm-hmm. It's part of the healing process, but also understanding that there are options available to treat it. That anxiety lessens mm-hmm. um, as well. So going back to earlier on what we, we discussed um, related to anxiety, um, she also had some anti-anxiety medications like, again, Ativan that she had at home, but an IV version in case the anxiety was enough that it would um, impact her ability to heal or sleep. And again, that emotional component being a part of pain um, is another reason why those other what we call adjuvant medications like um, anti-anxiety or benzodiazepines or muscle relaxants are really important um, in addition to powerful pain medications like opioids. Yeah, that's good. It gives people permission um, to support their whole system, their emotions as well. You mentioned something that I think is real important, um, paraphrasing what you said, that if the acute pain is not taken care of properly, then it can lead to chronic pain. I think a lot of times people or some people are afraid to take opioids or take medication for pain. Um, What, what are some of the benefits for doing that proactive pain management at the beginning? Um, The biggest reason is that, um, you know, one, the, you prevent the progression to chronic pain. 
because oftentimes when you get down the path of chronic pain, it's very hard to stop. Um, so that's number one. The other piece is that it, it, it reduces the um, acute pain episodes up front, the, the intensity of it as well. And it also, lastly, allows you to just better function, to better go about your daily activities, um, have your, breathe, <laughs> have that quality of life that, that we want. I mean, that's ultimately, I think, why I like pain management and palliative care, because the ultimate goal is quality of life. It's what the patient wants. And um, it's very comforting and an honor to help people get to that point. So that's why it's important to, to not be afraid of medications. Um, but as a pharmacist, I'm also going to say there's a lot of other ish things to do up front before medications uh, that, that can help with pain management. So I'm not pro-drug all the time. There's lots of times that it, me, you know, I, I'm sometimes guilty as this well. I'll let something go and go and then, all right, I'm going to take, take a medication. But um, to understand that meds are definitely a piece of it, but um, in many cases, maybe hot or cold therapy or physical therapy, um, lessen, you know, anxiety management, cognitive behavioral therapy is the way to go. That's often more with chronic so, therapy, you know, but in the same sense, home, um, it can be used for acute um, pain as well. Maybe Percocet or maybe they're on um, a patch. Maybe they're having severe pain for longer periods of time, maybe going through radiation or um, not just post-op. Um, what how do you uh, advise people to begin getting off the medication? How do they wean off the medication in a way that is most, is there a formula? Is there mm -hmm. something you recommend? Um, a lot of it, a lot of it's up to the patient and the medications, but, but really um, depending on the degree of pain, it's um, uh, we want to have a plan in place first. So under, for instance, let's using, um, post-operative pain. Um, the pain should lessen over time because you're healing. Right. So that's number one to understand. There, there really is, you know, over time it's okay. So in that case, it's okay to not have a long-acting medication, maybe like a patch, because it's probably not needed. Right. You use, you know, it's really to, to have enough medication for, um, for the acute episodes for what we call breakthrough pain, but otherwise it should be lessening over time. So uh, the plan would be to understand that, that as you heal, the pain will be going away. But also the stepwise approach would be to possibly use stronger medications like opioids, some morphine, dilaudid, things like that up front, but then have the patient and caregivers understand as the pain gets better, you don't have to keep using that. You can then go to a drug like Tylenol. You can go to a drug like ibuprofen, um, possibly topical therapies, whether it's like lidocaine patches, depending what's going on, where the pain is, to, to understand that the, the point is these drugs are not to be used forever, especially okay. for you know surgery. You should be healing. You shouldn't be in pain forever. Um, when it's other types of pain, let's say cancer pain itself, where um, it's going to be excruciating at times. And depending on the cancer and how it progresses. And if it's progressing, that pain may not go away. Um, to have, oftentimes in these cases, because it kind of goes into chronic pain, have long-acting medications like a fentanyl patch that is transdermal, you, you take it, you apply it every three days, or a drug like OxyContin, which you have, um, you take uh, twice a day, it lasts for 12 hours. Um, but again, to have a plan in place for one, for breakthrough pain. So if, what happens if I have pain above what's being controlled by these medications, when to use it and to make sure you have something. But also if that doesn't work, what can we go to next? In terms of weaning in those situations, it's again, really depends on the disease process. Hopefully if the cancer is being treated, using cancer as an example, um, having everyone involved in the care for the patient, specifically the patient, him or herself, but also the caregivers, family, friends, um, knowledgeable of the fact that it's okay to still use the medication, especially long acting, but to really use like what you stated before, to be documenting what's going on, how things are doing, be aware of side effects, and then kind of 
take it from there based on the patient. It's really him or herself that, that the titration goes down, but to really have the plan in place to, to take off the long-acting medication, have shorter-acting medications available for those more severe pain episodes, and again, going to use what we call co-analgesics or adjuvants, other medications that may lessen the intensity of pain, like anti-anxiety medications, like um, steroids, for instance, that would be used for bone pain. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, people often get confused about addiction and physical dependence. Uh, if they're taking a medication like that, um, some of these opioids for an extended period of time, their body becomes dependent on, on that. Right. And that's why the weaning off is so, it, it needs to be done slowly and carefully and with right. a plan. But it's, that doesn't mean they're addicted. Right. Right. That's one of my biggest pet peeves is, is the use of uh, is is addiction is hearing that word because everyone who needs a medication or seems to want to, you know, demand it, you know, in the hospital, especially, oh, I th- they must be addicted. They keep coming up. They keep requesting. Um, but no, you're right. It, it, they're not addicted. Um, that's often, you know, what patients are doing if they keep demanding medications um, is it's called pseudo addiction. It's basically because they're not being controlled properly. Right. And so not just like anyone would would want medication or more of it because it's not being addressed um, appropriately. But yeah, to your point in terms of weaning, I think the biggest piece, especially with acute pain, because chronic pain is a whole other animal where you need things for a longer period, it may be hard or impossible to wean someone off, is to know that most of the time these you know, pain is a response to injury. So as things heal, you're going to get better. But But knowing up front that this medication, especially an opioid, let's say OxyContin, if you need it for a long period of time, is not what you're going to be on forever. Too often, they're prescribed without any discussion, without any discussion of the amount of time it should take. Um, maybe it'll be less, maybe it'll be a little bit more, but not really understanding that these are not things that you should be on forever. It's during the process that you have the pain and the healing. Um, and as an aside, I know for my for my wife, again, fortunately, her pain was was well controlled during her hospital stay and then since um you know as she's healed i'm not to say she didn't have um some worse days but it fortunately was not excruciating for her um again because we both tried to be proactive to understand what could happen and what we have available but i will say um and and this is as a pharmacist i see this quite a bit with physicians um and they they have the best intentions both you know medical doctors and surgeons um my wife was given you know, a prescription for 30 percocet very common um and it might be needed in many cases but what that is 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 basically a hammer for you know when everything else looks like a nail is that really necessary is um the the point was i i'm not surprised because we that's prescribed when people have wisdom teeth taken out or simple dental procedures um but what often is what we've what's happened in medicine and maybe it's just a lack of understanding about pain and how it can be managed is um we give people these heavy doses or uh, large amounts of medications without really explaining what they should be used for, how long it should be used. And quite honestly, that, as you said, and I'm glad you brought it up, the things should be weaned down. There should be a plan to get off of, especially these higher dose, higher um, intensity medications like opioids. Um, yeah. So uh, as an aside, my wife had a little bit of a complication with her surgery, uh, part of the cosmetic process. So she had to go in for a day procedure. Um, everything fortunately went fine. She's healing well. But she was given another 30-day no. or 30-pill prescription. I forgot what it was exactly um, for Percocet. And I'm just, I think to myself, going back to our discussion about addiction, is that that's we keep we're perpetuating people who may be at risk for, for opioid use disorders by not really thinking about what we're giving, who it's going to, who it could affect beyond the patient. Um, so lo and behold, we did not get that filled because she still had some of the medication from her original surgery, like right. many people do. Yes, exactly. That's good. Well, and, and I think the point is important to be made that if you can't get that information from your physicians or the nurse or the information about a plan, go to the pharmacist, go to your pharmacist and find out what, what's the best approach and, and kind of keep digging until a plan re- helps with anxiety. 
-hmm. And um, that is, I think, a big um, a way to be proactive and with your care. Yeah, and I would I, I definitely support that as a pharmacist. And and I, I know people will say, well, my pharmacist seems busy. I don't know, you know. And I will say, I will counter that as someone who is a pharmacist, granted, in a different setting, is well, don't don't put up with that. Mm-hmm. Ask them. That's that's our job. Mm-hmm. Um, and the vast majority of us love doing it. We love sure. talking to everyone, and we're very happy to give that information. Um, so so demand it, if you will. And if right. not, you have every right to go somewhere else. I know that may not be an option, especially depending where people live, but. I, I know I don't. If I'm not going to get good service um, from whoever, physician, nurse, pharmacist, mm-hmm. I'm going to go change. It's not it's not fair because in this situation, what we learned with my wife is that, you know, you, you don't you have you don't always have the time, but also you only get one real good chance at this. So you don't want to squander um, the ability to make the best decisions or, you know, not have the best people involved for your care. Because I know for me and for her, we wanted the best people involved. And I think I'm sure with with your family as well, um, it, you should only, you should demand that much. You, right. It shouldn't be any less. That's right. And I think that when you're creating that team, your dream team that's going to take care of you throughout the process, um, you mentioned using other things, maybe massage or physical therapy or something like that, have in mind those things that really nurture you. And that's true for the caregiver as well, because the caregiver is working almost as hard as the patient and um, carrying a heavy load in addition to just daily living. But it might be essential oils. It might be having um, people that are already in your life that have served you in other ways lining those people up so that you know what's um what will give you relief in the process right right no and and i can't stress that more and it's and again it's really it's a matter of going back to original point is really understanding as the patient what you want what makes you tick Mm -hmm. what doesn't um because the physicians surgeons nurses involved all mean well and you know pharmacists whoever um but again they 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 don't oftentimes they don't know you as well. So what we've found is that you really have to go above and beyond um, just kind of taking everything in that they're saying, but stress and and feel empowered enough to tell them what makes you tick, what you want to do. Um, And that's really kind of a basis for palliative care um, as well. So even beyond, again, my wife, fortunately, was never at the process of end of life and we have to deal with all these other quality issues. But you know, she wanted to work. She still, you know, we wanted to make sure we could spend time with our son. So it's hard because oftentimes you're just, what's discussed in the medical office, you only have 15 minutes, a half an hour. The physician or surgeon has a certain number of things that he or she wants to discuss. You have certain questions and it it moves quickly and maybe you don't feel the opportunity to ask. But what I will say in stress is, Come with a little bit of a plan, even a couple questions, but really be 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 willing and able to say what you want and and what you really want to get out of this because the, they don't know and they may not. Off, many of them do. I, we were blessed to have some that really took the time with us, but may not want, want know what you want. Right, that's great, beautiful. This is so helpful. I think I could talk to you all morning long. Yeah, I know. I I feel like there's so many more things to say i hope is, it's is there it's anything else well. that comes to mind that you'd like to add um no i mean we we've discussed most i i think when it comes to pain management i mean i think i've covered most everything that we wanted I, I think the other piece is um like i i said before uh, when it comes to pain management and and the use of certain medications and 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 just in general um just to know that first and foremost medication may not always be the best thing um, some people respond differently, like you've stated as well. Um, two, depending on what the pain is, um, dilaudid is not always the answer. Right. <laughs> um, that's uh, that's something recently coming from um, a conference, uh, really with with a large number of pharmacists, people who I who I highly respect, um, in discussing this. There's many pain syndromes, fibromyalgia, chronic lower back pain, things even unrelated to what we've generally been discussing today. That opioids dilaudid, morphine, fentanyl are not needed. They really shouldn't be used because of the side effects and it's not the type of pain. Um, People with um, 
post-herpetic neuralgia or diabetic neuropathy, more neuropathic pain, nerve-type pain, opioids really shouldn't be used, especially first line. Um, so understanding that there's plenty of, there's many other options besides morphine. Um, to be used, um, and also different routes, topical therapies, um, pumps, depending on, on the severity of, of patients, patches, um, <laughs> suppositories, if you want to go down that road, you know, I don't think many people like that, but, but there's other ways besides just a pill and an injection, um, and that's, again, what I find so fascinating because of what I do, there's, you get to really be creative in this realm, mm. and lastly, um, to, to, ask questions at all times to really understand that, um, you know, you don't have to suffer with pain, um, to understand about it, to know that pain is going to exist with a lot of these disease states, with surgery, with cancer, but that it, that it doesn't have to be the be all to end all. There are plenty of options and that really you're not alone. And if you don't have someone of easily available to you is to just inquire. Um, that's, I, I'm actually doing some training and some education to, to be a, what's called a certified pain educator. Um, mainly, and that could really any health professional can do that. Um, but because beyond what I know and dosing and, and things related to drugs, the biggest piece is understanding, um, through the whole pain process and the treatment process and the assessment process. Mm -hmm. mm, that's great. Well, we'll, we'll just need to have you back for more I would love to be back. Um, yeah, and, and if you, any other any other topics okay. as well. I mean, there's so many other pieces I would love to go over. I, I, I hope I, I hope I did you a, a good service. Oh, I feel like I haven't talked wonderful. about enough of what we should have spoken about. And we are going to uh, make a, you know, a handout with your key points and sure. make those available to the people that are listening. Yeah. Well, Dr. Daniel Abazia, thank you so much for being a part of Faces of Pain Care. If you would like to contact Dr. Abazia, you may email him at dabazia, that's A-B-A-Z-I-A, -A at pharmacy.rutgers.edu. We will also have a handout with key points and a link to our pain relief log on this episode's page on our website. Listeners, we would love to hear from you please visit our website at www.wongbakerfaces.org or email us at wongbakerfaces at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and thank you for making a positive difference in someone's life. Thank you, Connie. It was a real pleasure. This has been another great episode of Faces of Pain Care. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss any of the new episodes. And be sure you check our previous shows for more information that will keep you informed and inspired.